Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. The 2021 Professional Football Researchers Association Convention will be held at the Gold Jacket Lounge at the Pro Football Hall of Fame during the final weekend of June. Convention speakers will celebrate the 100th anniversary of the founding of the NFL. The fee for the convention is $50 for members and $100 for non-members. The fee includes admission to the convention and Pro Football Hall of Fame, meals on Friday evening and Saturday afternoon, and free parking. All convention activities are subject to COVID-19 protocols. For more details, Details, click on the 2021 PFRA convention link at profootballresearchers.org. He won 265 games, and that includes seasons in which he won 45 games, 40 games, 36 games, and 31 games. Ten times he won at least 20 games in a season. He once threw, now get this, 657 and two-thirds innings in one year. His ERA that year, 1.85. Yet, this incredible career is never spoken of. This guy isn't even on anyone's radar when it comes to the Baseball Hall of Fame. Sort of a head-scratcher. But is induction in baseball's Hall of Fame deserved? Next, on Sports Forgotten Heroes, the case for Jim McCormick. This is Sports Forgotten Heroes, a tribute to the stars who shape the games we love to watch and the games we love to play. Stars who provided us with many thrills, but when their time was up, they faded away. We'll take a look back at their spectacular careers, their moments of fame, even if it was just for one season or just one game. And now, here's your host, Warren Rogan. Hello and welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes episode number 104, Jim McCormick. Who was Jim McCormick? In just a bit, my guest, Jay Wiley, will join us to tell us exactly who Jim McCormick was, and the remarkable numbers he posted during his 10-year career, a career in which he won 265 games and posted a 2.43 career ERA and averaged, averaged 298 innings a year. McCormick was a a pioneer of sorts. He played during baseball's infancy, breaking into the game in 1878 with the Indianapolis Blues, and he retired after the 1887 season after having gone 13 and 23 with the 
Pittsburgh Alleghenies. In between, holy moly, what a career. But like I said, he played during baseball's infancy. The rules were different. The game was different. But still, players from McCormick's era made it to the Hall of Fame. But for some reason, Jim's career was overlooked and largely forgotten. But when you consider the numbers and how they compare to the numbers of many who are in the Hall today, it does have to leave you wondering why Jim McCormick doesn't have a plaque hanging in Cooperstown. Jay Wiley discovered the career of McCormick a few years back and has been on a mission to get McCormick inducted. In fact, Jay created a website, McCormickForTheHall.com, and Jay posts continuously on Twitter about the career of Jim McCormick as well. Some of the numbers that Jay has uncovered and uses for comparison versus those in the hall are quite astonishing. And Jay and I are going to touch upon many of them in today's show. Before we get there, I will say this. Some of the reasons why I think Jim McCormick is not in the hall, fair or not, have to do with the fact that he played so long ago, and the Veterans Committee just doesn't know much about him or just doesn't know how to rank him. The start of his career, the rules were significantly different in the way a pitcher was allowed to pitch, and the distance between the mound and the plate was quite different than what it is today. But even after the rules were changed, he still racked up the numbers. Oh, and there's this. He only played for 10 years and he retired almost 20 years before the American League was established. There are so many factors working against Jim. But the numbers that do work for Jim are undeniable, some of which are just absolutely incredible. Okay, before we get into today's episode, just a few notes. Sports Forgotten Heroes is a member of the Sports History Network. You can find out more about the Sports History Network by visiting sportshistorynetwork.com. You can also find out more about Sports Forgotten Heroes by visiting my website, sportsfh.com. There, I have so much more about the Forgotten Heroes me and my guests talk about. Information about my guests. If you click on Ask a Question, you can submit a question for an upcoming show. And this is pretty cool. I have a list of stars whom I'll be talking about in upcoming episodes. And there's a deadline there as well. And you must submit your question by that deadline for it to be included. And I would love to have you do so. You can also submit comments and suggestions for future episodes. In fact, several of you have done so. 
And I have a few episodes coming up based on the suggestions of many of you. And thanks for that. You can also follow Sports Forgotten Heroes on Instagram. Look for the Sports Forgotten Heroes page on Facebook and look for Sports Forgotten Heroes on Twitter at Sports F Heroes. I post information about forgotten stars every day. As always, please, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, write a review and give Sports Forgotten Heroes a five-star rating. And of course, Thanks to all of you for listening. Now, Jim McCormick, a most dominant pitcher of his time. He won 265 games and completed 466. He hasn't been considered for the Hall of Fame since 1950. Is it fair? Should he be reconsidered? Very very valid questions and here to talk about the career of Jim McCormick and how he measures up against his contemporaries and the pitchers who are in the hall is the creator of the website McCormickForTheHall.com, Jay White. Jay, welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes. I am thrilled that you're able to join. Thank you, Warren. It's great to be here. I'm always eager to talk about uh, Jim McCormick. I bet you are. I've been following your tweets on Twitter for quite some time. I've checked out your website, McCormick for the Hall, several times. And uh, here we go with the first big question. Where does your interest in Jim McCormick come from? Well, I've had a lot of folks ask me that, and they assume I'm, uh, you know, related to Jim McCormick, and I'm not at all. Um, I'm working with some of his family members, but you know, I've just been a huge baseball fan my whole life, and I, whenever when I was a kid, I was just really fascinated with the Hall of Fame, and always wanted to go. It was a dream of mine to go. Mm-hmm. And beginning in 2014, when my kids were old enough for us to make the trip to Cooperstown, we we started going to induction ceremonies, and we've gone every year they've had one since 2014. And so it's just a passion of mine and my kids. And so, you know, I just started digging into kind of the history of the Hall of Fame and what players were there that maybe should have a plaque in the Hall of Fame. And I ran across this, kept running across this guy, Jim McCormick, on all the leaderboards uh, for every different stat I could look for. And Jim McCormick just uh, – it, it just became a passion of mine, digging more into his stats. Why wasn't this guy in the Hall of Fame with the statistics that he had? And so it just becomes – it became something that I just became passionate about. I sort of looked around, and I thought, well, surely someone is an advocate for this guy, and I would like to join the cause. But there was no one – there was no one advocating for him at all. So hmm. I just thought, well, someone's got to do this. So I decided it would be me. And so I reached out to several people like Jay Jaffe and and John Thorne and different people about, you know, hey, what do you think? And so I've been, you know, communicating with people about Jim McCormick for the last few years. And it's just sort of snowballed a little bit. I started a Twitter account and a website as you as you as you have seen. And here we are. Um I've uh, I'm just passionate about you know, writing what I think is an injustice in the history of the Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. So you discovered him 
by mm-hmm. researching him at the Hall of Fame? You saw stats there, or did you go back home and say, geez, I wonder who are some of the other guys who might not be in the Hall of Fame that I think should be in the Hall of Fame? Well, you know, it starts with every, you know, every fall, people start to get people like me start to get Hall of Fame fever. Who's going to get who's going to, you know, get inducted, who's going to get elected to the Hall of Fame? Um, You know, what what players, what pitchers, um, you know, on the Veterans Committee are going to get a second look. And you start looking at statistics and I'm kind of a stat geek myself. And so I just looked at statistics and, you know, to see who are the who are the best that are not in and why. And so it, it's just kind of snowballed from there. It's just kind of my own research. Mm-hmm. Um, but, the, you know, the Hall of Fame is just a really special place that my, my kids and I love. And so we'd love to see it, um, you know, see this injustice kind of kind of righted, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. you know, Jim played in and you do know Jim played in the National League from 1878 through 1887 and what was also known as the Union Association. Mm-hmm. Now, he played at a time when pitchers pitched from a distance of less than 60 feet, six inches and a mm-hmm. good portion of his career he wasn't allowed to throw overhand. So let's begin with these notes before we dive in deep on his accomplishments and your case, along with so many others, for Jim being inducted into the Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. Um, what can you tell us about the Union Association and the one year he played for a team known then as the Cincinnati Outlaw Reds. That's right. Yeah. Um, well, he did. Well, what happened was he was a vocal um, opponent of the reserve clause, which, as you know, really kept a player yoked to a team for as long as the team wanted that player. And so the the person, the, the player was basically like property, like chattel, right? Um, and so he was a vocal uh, opponent of that. So um, he jumped leagues. He had had enough of the reserve clause, decided he would leave the National League and jumped over to the outlaw Reds of the Union Association. Right um, now, it's a little bit different competitive environment in the Union Association. And he dominated. He went just in a partial season, went 21 and three with a 154 ERA. Um he had a 213 ERA plus, which means he was twice as uh, effective as the av- – more than twice as effective as the average pitcher in the league. Um, so he really dominated. He had a .786 whip that year. Mm. Um, he, was only, he was only there a short time, and then um, um, uh, Al Spaulding, who was kind of the, – who was the owner of the um, – of the Cincinnati White Sox, sort of the de facto boss of the National League, decided that he wanted this player that was killing it in the Union Association. Mm. So he basically brought him back into the National League where Jim McCormick had been blacklisted for leaving a few months earlier and brought him to his own Chicago White Stockings, right? And they proceeded that next year to win the national the National League championship with Jim McCormick killing it in the postseason that year. So Al Spaulding uh, sort of erased kind of the blacklist that uh, that uh, Jim McCormick was on so that he could have him join his own white stockings, right? Mm. 
Interesting. So that's sort of the history there. But he was a real pioneer in his uh, opposition to the reserve le- uh, the reserve clause back in uh, 1884. Mm-hmm. What? Um, and we're going to get into into more of that too. What happened to the Union Association and the Outlaw Reds? Do you know? You know, it disappeared um, not long after Jim McCormick left. I, I, I believe it was eighteen the next year, 1885, when that league kind of dissipated. It could have been 1886, but it didn't last very long. It was, it was mostly kind of a protest against the policies of the National League and the Reserve Clause, right? It didn't last long. Like a lot of leagues back then would pop up for a year or two and then sort of disappear because the talent really kind of stayed in the National League. And if players with the talent of Jim McCormick, stars in their own right, were flooding over to the Union Association, the National League would have had trouble itself, which is part of the reason that Al Spalding wanted to start poaching the best players from the Union Association to kind of, you know, uh, suffocate this this the baby in its crib, right? Sure, he didn't sure. want that kind of that kind of competition. So that was another reason why he wanted to take what was maybe the biggest the biggest talent in the Union Association, Jim McCormick. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So so let's talk about the pitcher's mound. Mm-hmm. Uh, what about the distance between the pitcher's mound and home? How far was it, and how consistent was it from park to park? Well, you know, this is why I like to compare Jim McCormick to his peers. It's really not fair to compare, you know, Jim McCormick to Greg Maddox or to Roger Clemens or pitchers that pitched under the rules that we have today, right? The rules were different back then. And so I really I really appreciate Bill James's work on this. Everyone kind of, you know, who's a stat geek kind of knows right. who Bill James is, right? Bill James has divvied up the history of baseball into d- different eras, okay? Largely based on rules, okay? So the era that Jim McCormick pitched in was 1871, which was kind of the inception of professional baseball, to 1892. 1892 was the last year that we did b- before the mound was moved to the current 60 feet, six inches. Right. So if you look at players from 1871 to 1892, you're really comparing sort of apples to apples. It, the, the distance would change from one year to the next, but basically it was the same game they were playing. OK, so I like to compare Jim McCormick to pitchers of his day, especially the five Hall of Fame pitchers that um, were his peers. Uh, and that was John Clarkson, Pud Galvin, Tim Keefe, Old Hoss Radborn, and Mickey Welch. Those are the five peers of Jim McCormick okay. who made the Hall of Fame. Okay. And 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 what do what was the distance? Do you know what the distance was? I'm just curious. It, it varied year to year. Oh, that's right. One you said that. Would, yeah, it would vary year to year. One year it would be 55 point something. The next year it would be 57 and then it would go back to 50. It, it would just change from year to year. This was really, you know, where they were figuring out this game. Sure. Right. And, and, and so it really did change from year to year. And it didn't become standard until again, until 1893. So how many of his years did he throw, I guess, underhand as opposed to overhand? And when did mm-hmm. overhand become a part of the game? 
You know, overhand, I, I, I may be wrong about the year, but it was very late in his career. So he pitched, as you said, from 1878 to 1887. I want to say it was 1885 or 1886 where overhand became allowed. But see, it, it, it's a little bit fuzzy because pitchers had to throw underhand. But if you were clever about how you pitched underhand, underhanded, then you could sort of get away with things, right? And again, you didn't have all the umpires that you have today on the field, right? You might only have one, right? Sure, you could, you could throw the ball like, uh, like Dan Quisenberry. If you were clever about it, you could get away <laughs> with a lot, right? And so, you know, people, pitchers would push the envelope. Well, can you explain it at all? I mean, what was that like? Was it a lob? Did he windmill it? What was it? What were the rules for for throwing the baseball back then? Like you said, you could be clever and maybe mm -hmm. disguise it, but mm -hmm. I don't know. Are you able to tell us the rules or were you able to research the kind of delivery that Jim had? Yeah, so there are contemporary news accounts that vary. And obviously, you know, the, the the news, the sports reporters of the day would embellish things and kind of have a flourish. So their article, their piece would stand out. Right. And so they described him as sort of a whirling dervish and sort of like, you know, uh, a, a leg kick and then a, a, a twirl and, you know, all these kinds of, you know, embellishments on what he looked like. Obviously, we don't have video or even, mm -hmm. photography, you know, any photographs of him delivering the baseball. But it, it was described as something that had his his pitches were described as having a lot of movement. Um, and his elbow actually had a lot of elbow issues. Back then, of course, pitchers threw a lot more than they did today. Oh, right? yeah. Look at the innings. 546, <laughs> 657. I mean, it's incredible, crazy, right? The number of innings that he would throw. So Jim McCormick threw over 4,200 innings in his career in only 10 seasons. Yeah. So we his are. 400, <laughs> yeah, right. It's incredible. So it's eye-popping. His 427 innings per year, by the way, is number one all time. Oh, I, I okay. can't imagine anybody beating that record. 427 innings every single year. And, you know, his rookie year, he pitched, you know, he was he came out of the bullpen and then halfway through that year, he started becoming kind of a starting pitcher as we know it today. So there were some innings, some years where he threw 600 innings, you know, yeah. as you saw. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, a little background on Jim. He was mm -hmm. born overseas. So if you can, mm -hmm. tell us about his upbringing. Where was he born? When did he come here? And why did he come here? And a lot of questions for you. How was he introduced to the game? Yeah. So um, so he uh, was born in uh, Scotland, okay, and um, uh, grew up in Patterson, New Jersey, okay, where he was a boyhood friend of uh, King Kelly. Oh, <laughs> Mike there you King go. Kelly, right? So they grew up in the same place, and they they the two of these they were they were boyhood friends. They organized um a, a league in their town okay along with a, a pitcher of of renown back in the day called uh, the only nolan that was his name <laughs> the only nolan okay i thought this nolan was ryan was the only this is, nolan this is a, this is a, a colorful time in history okay but uh king kelly and jim mccormick's team really kind of dominated the local teams and then they went on to the national league uh, and, and, uh, you know, his, his history, why he came over with his parents from Scotland is a little bit hazy. We really don't kind of know much about it. Um, 
And, uh, you know, but we do know that, you know, once he started playing baseball, he really just started to dominate. And, and again, 1878 was the year that he joined the National League and uh, and really just started to dominate from there. Well, obviously, he wasn't watching the game on television. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious to know how he found out about the game, how we learned the game. Mm -hmm. um, you know, again, that's sort of been lost to history. Um, we don't really know, except that, you know, I, you can imagine back in those days, you know, th this game sort of happening on a sandlot in Patterson, New Jersey, as it probably did in a lot of, you know, cities across, especially in the, you know, the eastern part of the country. And it was just sort of something that I, I think was just sort of word of mouth. People would just start playing these games like they play games today, like, you know, dodgeball or whatever, except this just sort of developed into a team game that, you know, in, in reading these things, it was, it was advertised as something to, you know, for you to get out of the factory and get out and get some clean, fresh air and go out onto the ball field and start, you know, to get your exercise. It was, it was described kind of in those terms, right? So people could just sort of get out of the mills and get, uh, get some fresh air on, you know, what free time they had back then. So, Okay. You know, how where they learned about it is really sort of lost, except that it's probably just something that happened in the neighborhood. OK, did mm -hmm. his family approve of his playing? Do you know that or did they want <laughs> Jim to go out and get a job? You know, back then, you know, it's a good question because back then, you know, players were sort of looked on, looked down upon, um, you know, as as as. Um, you know, men who were not doing what they were supposed to, you know, not doing their husbandly duty of, you know, working <laughs> in the factory or whatever it is back then. Right. It wasn't it was sort of looked down upon as sort of, you know, a waste of your youth. They obviously they didn't make money. Most players had a job in the offseason. Right. And Jim McCormick was no different. In fact, that sort of led to, you know, why he quit at age 30. Um, you know, his wife passed away right um and he had a young child and so he had to take care of his child and and that's what a lot of players had to do once they reach age 30 you really didn't see many players playing longer than that because gosh they really had to start earning a living right obviously even even when you do the uh, calculations if you mm -hmm. played a professional sport really back then all it was was baseball the, mm -hmm. the salaries didn't didn't come close to equating to my gosh, like a minimum wage job. Absolutely. And, and even, and, and that goes even for the stars of the game, if you can imagine. Right. Um, so imagine being a middling player, you know, a, t a league average player or, or even less than that, you know, you really were in dire straits. And by the time you reach your late twenties, you better start looking for a real job. And, and he wound up, did he not go into business with somebody, another ball player or somebody and, uh, open up a, a bar or a saloon or something like that? He did. He opened up a saloon um, in his hometown of Patterson, New Jersey, opened up a saloon, which he kept until years after he retired. And he was known for that saloon. He became famous around town as sort of someone of uh, some means because of the saloon, not because of baseball, <laughs> you know, that was sort of an aside. He kind of became a prominent figure in his town of Patterson, New Jersey, after he retired from baseball because of his ownership of this saloon. You know, let, let's get back to his on the field exploits here. And by the mm -hmm. way, Jay, I applaud your effort to get Jim elected to the Hall of Fame. In fact, a few years ago, I interviewed a gentleman by the name of David Jordan. 
he wrote a book called A Tiger in His Time. And that was a huge part of a campaign to get mm-hmm. Hal Newhouser inducted, and mm-hmm. it worked. So mm-hmm. never mm-hmm. say never, Jay. Anything yeah. is possible. It's true. And, you know, the, the thing is, is that if, if, if Jim McCormick doesn't make it this coming year, it's going to be nine more years before he's eligible for the Hall of Fame. So explain the- that. Explain that. Explain why that is. So those are the rules. The Hall of Fame has set up different um, eras, okay, for um, uh, players to be looked at. The era that Jim McCormick falls in is the early baseball era, and it's 1871, the inception of you know professional baseball, to 1949. Okay, so if a player falls, career falls mostly in that in those years, okay, then they're looked at you know um, in certain years. The early baseball era for the hall of fame is only looked at every 10 years. Um, so if he, and he was originally supposed to be looked at, perhaps the early baseball era was to be looked at this past year. And of course the, the baseball, because of COVID uh, the baseball hall of fame did not meet. So he's going to be looked at in the coming year. Hopefully he'll be on the ballot in the coming fall, but if he doesn't make it, it will be nine more years before they look at any other uh, early baseball era players. And in that time, you know, there's uh, there's an opportunity to really get the ball rolling more. I've only been at this for a couple of years, and Jim McCormick is a heavy lift um, because he plays in an era where I'm sad to say there's just not that much interest. Right? It's a very niche subject that we're, that, sure. uh, that I'm working in here. Right? So. You know, perhaps a book or, you know, talking to the right people and really kind of getting the ball rolling for Jim McCormick over the next several years might be what's in order. Uh, Hopefully, obviously, fingers crossed, he gets in this coming year. But if he doesn't, I'm sticking to this, right? I'm not giving this up. I'm going to keep the ball rolling. Well, you started something big. You got to keep it rolling. Absolutely. right. Hey, he was originally called a change pitcher, C-H-A-N-G-E. What right. was that? And when did he become his teams at that time, the Cleveland Blues of the National League, their so number one then, pitcher? Right. So so back then, teams only carried three, maybe four pitchers. Okay. And two of them would be what you would think of as starting pitchers. Um, the one other pitcher or maybe two other pitchers were called change pitchers. And these were basically emergency pitchers, pitchers that if the, if the player got injured, they would come in basically like a relief pitcher, but they were only used kind of in those circumstances The the starting pitchers that they didn't have that title back then, but, um, the, the regular pitchers the, the, were the pitchers that the team really leaned on and they would pitch, you know, a pitcher like Jim McCormick, who was the ace, would pitch probably two out of three days, right? Hmm. Um, and so uh, that's why they logged, you know, kind of the use that they did, and that's why their careers were short, frankly, because they got so injured from having, you know, been for being used so often. Uh, but a change pitcher was basically a relief pitcher, and just much less used. And a lot of rookies or pitchers who were sort of mediocre were used as change pitchers. Uh, and, and, you know, workhorses like Jim McCormick were just, you know, they, they rode them every day, just about. Right. And when, when he came up, he played for the Indianapolis blues in 1878. That's right. And then I'm guessing 
they moved to Cleveland to become the Cleveland Blues. That's exactly right. They did, yeah. So and, it was the same franchise. Yeah, and in his second year, so his first year, he went 5-8 and eight for Indianapolis, mm -hmm. and then he became a number one pitcher or one of the two main pitchers because he was 5-8 and eight year one. Year two, mm -hmm. <laughs> he mm -hmm. was 20 and 40. He threw, <laughs> right. I mean, 40 losses. He threw yeah. 546.1 innings. That's he right. started 60 games. <laughs> That's right. And he finished 59 of them. 59. <laughs> he completed 59 of his 60 starts that year. So he did go 20 and 40 in his sophomore season. And I'm glad you brought that up because the, the Indian, the, so the Blues franchise is one of the most historically terrible teams in major league history. Okay. The team OPS, you know, a, a, an OPS, an at league average OPS is, you know, 100. Okay, so if you have an OPS of 110, then you're 10 percent better than the league average. Right. Well, the team OPS was somewhere in the 70s and 80s most season <laughs> for the Blues. Horrible, horrible scoring teams. Okay, and that was also a reason why Jim McCormick uh, got so frustrated and wanted to jump to the Union Association was because his team was so bad and he was tied to them forever. Right. The the team basically owned Jim McCormick. He couldn't really go anywhere. There was no free agency or anything like that. Now, he so he lost a lot of ball games, And that's one of the reasons why he didn't get to that holy number of 300, 300 wins. Right. Wins. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Tell us about Is it. That, yeah, go ahead. No, I was just going to say he pitched for historically horrible teams. And that was a big, big factor. Right. Tell us about his arsenal. What kind of pitcher was he? What did he throw? Well, he threw a fastball. He threw a, he threw a curveball or what was known as sort of some sort of variation of a curveball, um, which is interesting because in later articles and including some obituaries, they some people credited him with being one of the very first pitchers to ever introduce the curveball. Now, whoever introduced the curveball is sort of lost to history. Candy Cummings is sort of known in baseball lore as sort of the inventor, quote unquote, of the curveball. But we know that that's not exactly so. There were other pitchers that were using it before and during Candy Cummings' career. And Jim McCormick was one of those. So he was very much an innovator in, um, in the pitches that he threw. But he was known as a crafty pitcher, but also somebody that could blow you away. When he needed to, his his strikeout totals were pretty good for his day. Yeah, I mean, he 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 did strike out uh, a number of batters: one hundred ninety-seven, two sixty, one seventy-eight, two hundred. One year, he had three hundred forty-three. Mm -hmm. So he he mm -hmm. was able to to strike out strike out the batters. And I'm wondering, you said, you know, if he if he needed to rear back and throw it, he could, whether it was underhand or overhand. And he he right. had the curveball, but he yeah. had another pitch, and it was called a drop ball. What's a drop ball? The drop ball is 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 basically a variation on the curveball. That's what they would have called it back then. They wouldn't necessarily have called it the curveball as we know it today, but the drop ball would have been very similar to what we would know today as a curveball. It would be a, a ball that would that would move downward uh, in the batter's box. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we've talked about how many innings he would throw. So, 
1879, he threw 546.1. 1880, he threw 657.2 innings. There are pitchers that don't do that. Starting pitchers today who start 30 games a year don't, in three years, don't throw 657 innings. Sure, that's right. Um, 81, he threw 526. 1882, came close again to 600 at 595.2 innings. In 1883, he threw 342 innings. 1884, he threw 569 innings. And I'm looking at these numbers. They're just crazy numbers. Uh, Game started 74, 58, Mm -hmm. 67, 41, 65. My guess is it must have been around 1885. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, somewhere in that range. Yeah, I mm-hmm. would say 1885 is when the change over from underhand to overhand must mm-hmm. have mm-hmm. come into play because it's a hard, it's a hard number. He went um, in 1885. I mean, you know, the, the innings, they dropped 252, 37. He must have been hurt. 215, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 347, 322. So the the changeover must have been made, but still he was logging, logging mm-hmm. a lot of innings at that time. So yeah, yeah. like you he, said, he you said yeah. He, yeah. They, they didn't play for that long. That's right. And he actually did have an arm injury in 1883 that cut his season short. So he only finished the season 28 and 12 but <laughs> with with a with 342 innings pitched. Um, but he, he, you know, even later in his career, he continued to have nagging injuries. And but the final year of his career, OK, he finished with 322 innings that year. Um, so, you know, even it was also his late, worst. It was also the worst ERA of his career at a four point three. It was, yeah, it really was, and he pitched for a, a, a bad team. Did he only logged thirteen wins that season, and he had a four thirty ERA the final right. year of his career. Right, mm-hmm. but the year before that, mm-hmm. with uh, Chicago, eighteen eighty six, yeah. he had a great year, thirty one and eleven, mm-hmm. a two point eight two ERA. He threw three hundred and forty seven innings, and he struck out one hundred and seventy two batters, and. Mm-hmm. He completed 38 of his 42 games. Just crazy right. numbers. Right. And, and, you know, incidentally, of of the 485 games that he started, he completed 466 of them. <laughs> so uh, it, it's really incredible. And, and actually, I've, I've, I've looked at all the percentages of, you know, how, of the era, you know, how many, you know, what pitchers completed a greater percentage of their starts than Jim McCormick and only one old Hoss Radborn beat him in percentage of games completed. Wow. So there you are. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, Jay, hair. yeah. Jay, like I said, you post about Jim all the time on Twitter. If folks, if you are on Twitter, check it out at McCormick. That's M C C O R M I C K underscore HOF at McCormick underscore HOF. And you have a terrific in-depth website. I mean, I applaud you for this campaign. Um, You have so much information about Jim there. It's called McCormick for the hall.com. 
There mm -hmm. is a number that was developed by Bill James, a calculation to mm -hmm. determine how likely a player is to get into the Hall of Fame. Should be noted that this number doesn't necessarily say how good a player was. Rather, mm -hmm. it's a number to determine mm -hmm. how likely a player is to get into the Hall of Fame. Mm -hmm. Jim McCormick yeah. has a 194 score. He mm -hmm. is ranked 17th overall for pitchers. Of the mm -hmm. 16 pitchers ahead of him, only one, Roger Clemens, is not mm -hmm. in the Hall of Fame. It's crazy. In That's fact. Right. Of the top 25 all time, and disregarding Clemens, McCormick is the only pitcher of the top 25 not in the Hall of Fame. It's a very interesting analysis. So let me ask you this. McCormick also only won, as you said, only 265 games for his career. That's mm -hmm. 10 years. That's an average of 26 wins a year. Right. How do you think that number affects the way he's looked at? And by the way, he played, like you said, for some very poor teams. You know, it, it's really everything. It, it's it's the it's still even though we have all these advanced statistics and we now understand that the win is really kind of a flawed um, number. Um, it's still the question I get asked most <laughs> when I go to Cooperstown and I start talking with folks there in town or people at the Hall of Fame about Jim McCormick. That's the first question I get asked. How many wins? You know, and, you know, 265 is nothing to sneeze at. Right. It's no, 39th all time. Yeah. He led the league twice in wins. He won 25 games six times. He won 40 games twice. In 1880, Jim McCormick won 45 of his team's 47 wins. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so he went on a 15-game win streak. I mean, if you look at, you know, he averaged over 26 wins a year for his entire career. Um, you know, he was no slouch and he played for a historically terrible team. Um, what I'd like to show is that, hey, look, he still stacks up in these traditional categories. He, he, he really does. Um, but the advanced statistics that we now have reveal just how great he really was. The problem is that because he doesn't have that magic 300 next to his name, um, he sort of gets lost in the shuffle because he played so long ago. And there's really a lack of interest in 19th century ballplayers because we can't watch them. We can't right. see video. We can't, you know, we don't even have the grainy, you know, Walter Johnson footage of him, right. you know, tossing the baseball, you know, on the, uh, you know, um, it, it's, it's, we just don't have those things. So we are reliant on statistics. And um, because he didn't get to that magic 300, he sort of gets lost in the shuffle. And I'm hoping to, to remedy that. Yeah, you know, I wonder if that Magic 300 ultimately is going to be reduced to about 220 to 250, somewhere in there, because I don't think there's any pitcher in baseball right now who's yeah. going to achieve 300 wins. It's Yeah, it's going to be – it would be really, really difficult. I even wonder how it was we had guys like Tom Glavin and these guys who yeah. got to 300, right? I mean they played in the modern era, and it, you know there were amazing, just stunning pitchers. But I even wonder how those guys got to 300. It's, it's a heavy, heavy lift nowadays. Yeah, I mean you look at the guys who dominate the game today, Clayton Kershaw, mm -hmm. Jacob deGrom, you know, guys like that. Mm -hmm. Garrett Cole. These guys aren't going to win 300 games. Right. Right.
Yeah, it's just not going to happen. Yeah, I mean, even even the guys like you know Bartolo Colon, who pitched for a really long time and at a high level too. Yeah, still you know still are not really close. No, no, it's not uh, at all. it's not. I I, I doubt we'll see three hundred wins again. Yeah, I don't think so. Mm-hmm. What can you talk at all about the one ninety four score that I referenced just before? What is it? How is it calculated? And 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 why is it an important number? So Bill James has included lots of different metrics um, that would indicate someone who deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. It includes wins and ERA and kind of traditional statistics like that, but also includes war and some other sort of advanced statistics. Um, And so kind of all of those things kind of combine. How many times did they lead the league? What's kind of how much bold face do you see on their uh, baseball reference page, right? And there's a lot for Jim. There is a lot, yeah. And so you – including, by the way, a lot of things that aren't bold in there because no one knew they existed. War, he led the league in war many times, although no one knew it, (laughs) right? But he was the best pitcher in the league many, many years in a row. Um, and so it's kind of all of those stuff, all that stuff included. But what I like to what I like to show people about that score, the Hall of Fame, the Bill James Hall of Fame score is what pitchers that we know is he does he have a better score than? And that includes Jim Palmer, Bob Feller, Gaylord Perry, Tom Glavin, John Smoltz, Juan Marichal, Burt Blylevin, Roy Halladay, Mike Messina. He has a better score than those guys. And I think that's really illustrative of who we're really talking about here. We're really talking about an elite pitcher, certainly top 30 all time. No doubt. And no doubt. and maybe cracks the top 20. No doubt. I mean, that's what we're talking about here. Because when you take a look at some of these numbers, all right, let's take mm-hmm. a look. 1879 through 1884 mm-hmm. is ridiculous. He averaged 32 wins a season, but mm-hmm. lost on average 27 games a season. And like you said, played for mm-hmm. some historically – historically bad baseball teams in 1880 he won Mm -hmm. his career high 45 games 1879 his first full year he he lost a career high 40 games he also won 20 again Mm -hmm. the game was different so talking 1879 through 1884 how do you measure those seasons against more modern seasons? What do those numbers say improve? Well, it's it's hard to measure, you know, those years against modern seasons. What I like to do is compare apples to apples, Jim McCormick versus the five pitchers that he played with and against that made the Hall of Fame. And of those other five pitchers, if you include Jim McCormick in that group, that's six pitchers, he played with fewer Hall of Fame teammates than every single one of those players, right? So the talent was really lacking on the Blues. His team was shut out much more than any of those other pitchers. Um, So in other words, you know, if he pitched a great game and gave up one run, he would often lose one to nothing. I'm a Mets fan, and that's my battle about that's Jacob DeGrom. Exactly right? In fact, I love to compare. I did an analysis a year or two ago of him versus Jacob DeGrom. Oh, interesting. And how, you know, and kind of the, um, you know, how terrible their teams were or didn't score for for them, right? And, of you know, Jacob DeGrom had it historically a couple of years ago, won the Cy Young when his team with oh, how many wins? Did he have? Yeah, he 13 like, wins. Yeah. And it's yeah. crazy because because getting off topic, you know, mm-hmm. if if he loses a game one to nothing, 
right. you know, he loses the game. So that's where I think your argument uh, from earlier on about mm-hmm. the value of a win. And, right. you know, I'm a member of Sabre and one of mm-hmm. the uh, upcoming meetings we have, we have scheduled to talk about the value mm-hmm. of a win. How mm-hmm. valuable is it? it? Should a pitcher be mm-hmm. measured by the amount of wins he accumulated during the season over or over the course of his career? Is it is it a fair number to mm-hmm. to gauge a pitcher? Sure. If he's got 300 wins, he's got 300 wins. You can't overlook it. But, you know, mm-hmm. a pitcher who played for these historically bad teams is mm-hmm. likely not going to win 300 games. Uh, That's true. Yeah. And and if a player, you know, is done by age 30, like Jim McCormick, then they don't have those few extra seasons where they kind of pad their totals to right. get to 300 wins. I don't think there's any doubt if McCormick had played a little bit longer, he would have made it. In fact, comparing him to the five peers of his that made the Hall of Fame. Um, after age 30, there was a severe decline amongst those other players who made the Hall of Fame. The difference was they played those extra seasons and they padded their win totals. Okay? Yeah, I challenge any pitcher to go and pitch a career right now with the Pittsburgh Pirates. I don't care who you are. You're not winning 300 mm-hmm. games. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's right. Well, we talked up through 1884, and I think this is where it gets really interesting. And again, I'm I'm guessing that this mm-hmm. is when overhand ball sort of came into mm-hmm. play because the inning the amount of innings pitched and and games started certainly decreased mm-hmm. but after those first you know 1878 to 1884 we get to 1885 1886 1887 he was throwing the ball overhand and he certainly proved his greatness posting records of 21 and 3 mm-hmm. 21 and 7 20 mm-hmm. and 4, 31 mm-hmm. and 11. Talk about those years and the teams he played for and how remarkable it was that he was able to win though you know that amount of games for those kinds of teams. I know the teams got a little bit better. Well, it wasn't until 1885 when he joined the Chicago White Stockings that he joined a competitive team. Mm-hmm. The Blues were at the bottom of the barrel his entire career until then, until I think what was his seventh year in the league, seventh or eighth year in the league when he joined the White Stockings. And he was able to really kind of lead the um, the White Stockings to a championship that year. Um, in the postseason that year, he started five of the seven games in the World Series, which is a testament. And And by the way, the other pitcher, who was on that staff was John Clarkson, who was perhaps mm. the best of the entire era, a young John, a John, John Clarkson. But Jim McCormick took the ball five out of the seven games. He completed all five games in that World Series and accounted for three of Chicago's wins in the series. So, And he also had a, two, a 2.0 ERA and a .917 whip. So he really killed it in the postseason that year. The one opportunity that he had to really play competitive baseball at the highest level, right. Against the best other, you know, the best teams. 
he uh, he dominated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so it just it makes you wonder if he had been you know a little bit younger in his career when he was putting up those numbers with the terrible Blues team, if he had been on a competitive team, what he may have done, the wins he may have put up, uh, you know, the accolades he could have you know um, accomplished. But he just played for an historically bad team for two thirds of his career, at least two thirds. And let's not overlook this other fact. He had a bat, too, and he wasn't awful. He was a 236 career hitter. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he helped himself, that's for sure. And he often batted, you know, middle of the lineup, <laughs> you know. And this was before it was a standard that the pitcher was going to bat ninth. But to bat, you know, second or third or fourth in the lineup, he did that often. Right. And, you know, back to pitching – he had ERAs 1.54, 1.84, 1.85. I mean, you know, he, he put up the numbers. But let's talk a bit, a little bit about the bad. Off the field, of course, like so many of his contemporaries, he fought with the bottle. And yeah. much like it is today, there were battles with management. You and you, you, you referenced that earlier on when we were talking about the reserve clause. So when it came to contracts and money, there were battles with management. So can you talk about the booze and how that affected his relationship with team management? And interestingly enough, in 1886... Baseball Mm -hmm. implemented a cap of sorts. No contract could be Mm -hmm. signed for more than Mm $2,000. And this was actually a reduction in salary for Jim. But his team owner at that time was, as you said earlier, Al Spaulding of the Mm -hmm. Chicago White Stockings. I think they're now the Cubs, interestingly enough. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He worked out a bonus system with him. Well, it didn't work out for Jim, did it? Again, the booze got him. That's right. He fought with Al Spalding a lot with the ownership. And, you know, like a lot of players back then, yeah, you know, these were rough and these were rough and tumble guys. You know, this was not the the um, you know, they, they didn't make much money. They enjoyed their off their season, their time uh, off the field, <laughs> maybe a little too much. And he got fined by Al Spalding a lot for uh, for dabbling with the booze. And he got in trouble with that. And uh, like a lot of players back then, you know, once he retired, it did become an even bigger problem for him. In fact, he died of cirrhosis of the liver mm. in uh, at, at the age of 62 in 1918. Um, and um, – you know, he really had a rough a rough time in his final years. He he moved in, he sold his tavern, and he moved in with his son. And actually, the famous preacher Billy Sunday was a teammate of his and a lifelong friend. And hmm. Billy Sunday, whenever he would come into New Jersey, would stop by and check in on Jim McCormick, and would sometimes leave him a little bit of money uh, because he was he had a rough time the last last few years. There was there was no retirement, there was no pension, there was no none of that kind of thing. And so um, players had uh, – it, it, it was it was different time, very different time. And in fact, I mean it's a sad story the way his life ended. In fact, even his tombstone misspells his name. Oh, yeah. that's awful. 
Yeah. So it was, it, he had a rough uh, end to his life, which I don't know, maybe adds a little bit, bit of color to his life, but it also is sort of a little bit of motivation to really, you know, like I say, you know, right a wrong that I think has occurred in all in baseball history and really celebrate this player for who he was. He was, an, he was a superstar. So can you go deeper into the contracts that he signed? You know, the fact that he did have to take a reduction in salary because of the cap and, that, uh, you know, there were there were bonuses. Um, can you talk at all about that? What do you know about that? Well, not too much. I, I don't know a whole lot about how the contracts worked, except that he was a, 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 a real um, staunch opponent of the reserve clause and jumped over to the union association to get away from that, but quickly found that, hey, look, you know, the talent and the competitive kind of spirit was really still in the national league. And that's why he accepted Al Spalding's offer to come over and play for a juggernaut like the white stockings back then, who was, uh, which, you know, was led by cap Anson, famous cap Anson, mm-hmm. right? The famous hall of famer. Um, and so the opportunity to do that was really kind of too much for Jim McCormick, especially since he hadn't, I don't believe he had the tavern by 1885. And so for him to jump over and make a little bit of money with the white stockings and pl- play for a competitive team for the first time in his career was just something he couldn't, um, he couldn't pass up. But again, he got in trouble with, <laughs> with ownership over, you know, drinking back then. And uh, you know, he just decided he actually in his final year, Uh, There was a little bit of a bidding war for where Jim McCormick was going to go, and he decided to land in Pittsburgh. Um, He retired after that 1887 season in Pittsburgh because his wife was gravely ill with Mm -hmm. tuberculosis. Mm -hmm. And so there was talk of him returning to baseball after that, but there just wasn't enough money in it, at least not enough as like he was making with his tavern in Patterson, New Jersey. And so he decided to hang up his cleats um, after that 1887 season in Pittsburgh and never came back. But there was talk for years, up to five years after he retired. There was talk about the great Jim McCormick coming back to play baseball. Of course, he never did. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Let's get into detail with some of his numbers. I'm going to mention the stat, the number, and you make a case and tell us about those numbers, why they're so impressive and you know, are okay. they overlooked, whatever it is. And let's begin with the 265 wins. Mm-hmm. Tell us about that. I mean, how impressive. I Seventh all-time in wins through the age of 30, led mm-hmm. the league twice in wins, won at least 25 games six times, 40 mm-hmm. twice, um, mm-hmm. averaged 26 wins a year for his career, which I think is third all-time. So, you know, make mm-hmm. a case, 265 wins. 265 wins is 39th all time. Okay. So there are 66 starting pitchers in the baseball hall of fame. Okay. And he is 39th all time in wins seventh all time in wins through the age of 30. Okay. So when he had an opportunity to throw, he made the most of it. Okay. Uh, Again, won 25 games, six times, led the league twice in wins, won 40 games twice. Okay. Uh, had a 15-game win streak in 1886, um, a record that still stands. So, uh, you know, he put up the numbers when he had an opportunity to for terrible teams. If he had played a little bit longer, he would have made it to that 300 wins. But that wasn't, you know, the 300 wins was certainly there was no Baseball Hall of Fame back then. There was no guarantee that this game these guys were playing was going to 
was going to last, right? The year uh, after he retired, 1888, was the year we saw the first 300-game winner, and that was Pud Galvin. Oh. Um, yeah, that's right. Um, and so, you know, if he had if he had played a little bit longer, he may he he would have he would have gotten to 300 wins, that magical number. Mm-hmm. But you know, he hung it up a little bit early and uh, fell short. Okay, tell me about his 2.43 career ERA. So his 2.43 ERA is the eighth best among the 66 starting pitchers in the Hall of Fame, or it would be if he were in the Hall of Fame, right? It would be the eighth best. There are only four pitchers with a 2.50 or better ERA with with 4,000 innings pitched, and that's Christy Mathewson, Walter Johnson, Eddie Plank, and our own Jim McCormick. <laughs> so there you go. Not only and we're not talking about a 2.43 ERA with just a few thousand innings pitched, 4,000 innings pitched with a 2.43 ERA. His ERA is better, better than every single one of the five contemporaries that made it into the Hall of Fame. Better than all of them. He led the league twice. Uh, twice he had a sub two ERA. Um, Three he times he had a sub two ERA. Three yeah. times. Yes, yes, that's right. Yeah. Um, one of only eight pitchers in history to have an ERA under two with 600 innings pitched. Um, that's elite. That's elite company he's in there. So his 243 ERA stacks up uh, with his contemporaries and across all of baseball history. Yeah, it doesn't matter what era you played in. That's that's mm-hmm. those are crazy numbers. All right. Here's yeah. here's here to me is just this is one of the nuttiest numbers. Mm-hmm. 466 complete games. Yeah. Yeah. That's 11th all time. And it's not going to change. <laughs> it will be 11th all time for the rest of history, right? No yeah. one's ever going to get yeah. that many complete games again. And it's also would be ninth among hall of famers. Um, he averaged 46.6 complete games per year. That's number one all time. No one had more complete games per year than Jim McCormick. Um, and uh, he led the league every year in complete games from 1880 to 1882 and is third all time in complete games through the age of 30. Um, so, you know, he stacks up against the all time greats back then, you know, the Walter Johnsons and the Cy Youngs and those guys. He's in that company. Okay. His, his, his war mm-hmm. is 76.2, which is 27th all time. Mm-hmm. He has a 68.7 peak war. Can you explain yeah. what peak war is? So peak war takes um, – uh, so there are different – You know, pitchers are different, right? Some pitchers accumulate war over a very long career, and other pitchers have a short career and a really high – at a really high level, like Sandy Koufax, for example, right? And so they're both – You know, both of those kinds of pitchers have a really good case for being in the Hall of Fame. So um, – what 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 we do is we look at the top seven war years and say, okay, this was the guy's peak. How good was he at his peak? Okay, well, his peak of sixty eight point seven seven year peak war is sixth all time. So basically, he was he had the sixth greatest peak in history. Um, only Walter Johnson, Cy Young. John Clarkson, Kid Nichols, and Grover Alexander have a higher seven-year peak war. 
Um, and uh, that's pretty elite company. I mean, he he has a better peak war than Christy Mathewson, Randy Johnson, Bob Gibson, Tom Seaver, Pedro Martinez, Greg Maddox. I mean, Nolan Ryan. I mean, we go on and on. Um, you know, he had an, an incredible peak. Wow. And then and then he has what's called a uh, a 72.4 Jaws, which is 17th all time. What exactly is Jaws? So we take those those pitchers that accumulate war over a long career and uh, and the ones who have a short career but a high peak. And we sort of combine those and see where they fall uh, when we sort of combine longevity versus a really short and high peak. And we come up with the Jaws score, which is named after Jay Jaffe, who's really become a pioneer for mm-hmm. a lot of, you know, uh, he, he's always in this discussion about who should go in the Hall of Fame kind of thing. He's he's at the, at the head of that class. Um, and How so, does he feel about Jim? You know, I've talked with Jay about it, and Jay is sort of ambivalent, <laughs> I think he'll tell anyone, about 19th century pitchers. Um, he's more interested in more modern okay. pitchers, it sounds like. And so in the 19th century, because of the rule changes and things, right, that we've had since then, it was a little bit different game. And so, um, you know, he's kind of neither here nor there, I think, when it comes to 19th century pitchers and and reevaluating them. But his score, his, his Jaws score, says that Jim McCormick is one of the best pitchers of all time, 17th all time, in fact, in his own score. And only Roger Clemens has a higher Jaws score and is not in the Hall of Fame. Interesting. All right, mm-hmm. tell me about wins above average. Wins above average is a little bit higher bar than war. Um, war compares players with their replacement player from the minor leagues, right? Wins above average compares players with the average major leaguer, okay? Um, and so it's a higher bar. Now, Jim McCormick is 23rd all time in wins above average. He has a 43.1 wins above average. Only Clemens and Schilling have a higher uh, wins above average score without being elected to the Hall of Fame. (laughs) The average starting pitcher in the Hall of Fame is 37.7. Jim McCormick is (laughs) 43.1. And and, and by the way, you'd be hard-pressed to find any numbers at all where Jim McCormick is below the average Hall of Famer. I can't think of one. This is so interesting. It's mm-hmm. it's so I've got to ask. I've got to ask again, and you've said it, but I'm going to ask it again. What's mm-hmm. the knock against him? Why has he been unable to get the support he needs to get into the hall? The short answer is uh, he pitched so long ago that there's really sort of a lack of interest. Um, y- you know, uh, we don't have video. We don't have you know many photos of Jim McCormick, and so it's just a really hard lift for people when you know they're interested in the. Uh, um, you know, the Roy Halladay's and, 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 you know, even like, you know, when we're looking at, you know, pitchers who have not made it in the hall of fame, we're looking at Louis Tiant and we're looking at Rick Russell and we're looking at Tommy John and those guys, right. That we saw play, or at least, you know, a lot of us did. I'm a little bit younger than some, but, um, we saw these guys play. We know what they did and we, we, we know who they played with and we can compare those guys really, really easily to the guys that are in the hall. It's a little bit harder when we're talking about players that we kind of just are, you know, stats on a, on a sheet of paper. It's a little bit harder to get people interested and to build sort of a, sort of a movement like we did with, uh, you know, some people did with Jack Morris, for example, right. Mm -hmm. To develop kind of a campaign. It's a little bit harder to do. That's all. 
Here's a tough one, but it is what it is. Um, he was, as you call it, a tough luck pitcher. He played eight of his 10 seasons for historically bad teams. Only once did he finish above fifth out of eight teams in, in runs scored. I, yeah. I mean, just he, how does that affect him? Uh, it, it, it's a big deal, not, not just with wins, but really sort of in, you know, we look at, we look at players who play on championship teams, play for winners, and we view those players as winners. But if you play on a really terrible team, it's just harder to stand out. I mean, I went through and looked at all 66 starting pitchers in the baseball hall of fame and looked at every single one of the teams that they played for and looked at the OPS plus for all those teams, which is kind of like a statistic that tells you just how good the offense was just all around, right? How many runs they scored, how, how, how lethal was the offense. Okay. And of all those 66 pitchers, Jim McCormick, if he were in the hall of fame would be third worst. He would have the third worst team behind him than anybody else. In the Baseball Hall of Fame, only mm. Ted Lyons and Ed Walsh mm. played for worse scoring teams than Jim McCormick did. So he had his work cut out for him. Wow. Yeah. Well, he lost we, a lot of one to nothing games. It's yeah. just a fact. Yeah. Well, mm. we went through a lot of these different numbers, and there's so many more. And I encourage everybody mm. who's listening to visit your site to see just exactly how Jim McCormick – Mm-hmm. measures up against his contemporaries and and the pitchers that followed who are in the Hall of Fame. And I have a link to your website on my website, sportsfh.com. Go to sportsfh.com, and it's got a direct link to your website, mccormickforthehall.com. I'm going to spell that out, M-C-C-O-R-M-I-C-K-F-O-R-T-H-E. H-A-L-L.com. Easier to go to sportsfh.com and click the link. Um, and you can you can follow on Twitter at McCormick underscore HOF. That's at McCormick underscore HOF. Such good stuff, Jay. I mean, I like I said, I applaud your passion. So here we go. Mm-hmm. Jay. The floor is yours. You are in front of the Baseball Writers Association of America, the Veterans Committee, those who vote for a Hall of Fame induction. What do you say? What's your 60-second pitch on Jim McCormick to get him inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York? So the Hall of Fame's mission uh, is to preserve the sports history honor excellence within the game, and make a connection between the generations of people who enjoy baseball. That's their mission, okay? But it's unclear if Jim McCormick has ever appeared on a ballot for Hall of Fame consideration. Wow, okay? wow. That's, um, that's more that, – that, that's to me, is more stunning than the fact that he's not in. Right, yeah. It really is stunning. And so uh, 265 wins, 243 ERA, 1.13 whip – 4,275 innings pitched, 
466 complete games, 118 ERA plus, 76.2 war. Whether you're looking at traditional statistics like ERA and wins, or you're looking at advanced statistics like ERA plus or war or jaws, he stacks up with the very, very best pitchers of all time. And uh, the numbers don't lie. Um, so I, I would really, you know, my ask this this year is to get Jim McCormick on the ballot. That's the first step. Get him on the ballot. OK, he really deserves a second look because baseball has forgotten one of its greats. It really has. And so we really need to take a second look. And when people take a good look at Jim McCormick, I'm convinced the numbers speak for themselves. Hmm. Interesting. Mm hmm. Jay, lastly, is there a road for induction? Absolutely there is. And I'm convinced that one day Jim McCormick will be in the Baseball Hall of Fame because, you know, the arc of Baseball Hall of Fame history is long, but it bends toward justice to, to, to kind of, you know, borrow a phrase, right? It really does. And at the end of the day, I'm convinced that his numbers will speak for themselves as long as people take a good look. Um, there are a few players from the 19th century that have been forgotten, and Jim McCormick is definitely, I think, at the top of that list. So I'm, I'm, I'm convinced that if enough people look at his numbers, they're going to come to realize that, boy, we forgot one. We really did miss one. And uh, 300 wins aside, um, he really has the numbers to be to, – to have a plaque in the Baseball Hall of Fame, and I'm convinced he will one day. We're going to push hard. Well, with your passion, I don't see how how it can't happen. Jay, I want to thank you so much for joining me on Sports Forgotten Heroes. I got to tell you, this has been a lot of fun. This has been an education. I am so glad that I found you on Twitter, and I encourage everybody to to follow Jay on Twitter. I mean, this is this has been a lot of fun. Uh, you know your stuff. And I just want to thank you for joining me on Sports Forgotten Heroes because this guy, Jim McCormick, is definitely a forgotten hero. Warren, I really appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun. And, you know, I'm, uh, I'm excited about uh, the opportunities that we have for Jim McCormick going forward. And thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it a lot. You bet. Honestly, I don't know how to measure the career of Jim McCormick. His numbers are quite extraordinary. How can you post the numbers he did and not be in the hall? Twice, he won at least 40 games in a season. Two other times, he won at least 31 games. And five other times, he won at least 20 games. When you look at the game today, wins are hardly a valuable statistic. But still, the numbers McCormick put up are, in a sense, ridiculous. 657 innings pitched one year, and four other times he threw more than 500 innings in a season. But the game was different. Should that exclude him from induction? No, I don't think so. He played by the rules of his era, and he was great during that period. So, does he deserve induction? Phew. It's a big question, and I just don't know how you can keep him out. Hopefully, Jay's mission will help resolve the question as to whether or not 
Jim McCormick deserves to have a plaque hanging in Cooperstown, New York. For more on Jim McCormick, check out Jay's website, McCormickForTheHall.com. A lot of great information there and some great comparisons too. Next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes, I have a very special guest, Bob Kendrick, the president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Hall of Fame. And we're going to talk about the overshadowed career of the first black man to play in the American League, Larry Doby, a member of the Baseball Hall of Fame and one heck of a ball player. That's next time. For now, thanks again to Jay Wiley for stopping by today's show and to talk about the great Jim McCormick. And, of course, thanks to all of you for listening. And I'll see you next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes.